Welcome to the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. I am BHE Senior Editor Tom Valentino, and today I am joined by Tamara Beetham, a PhD student in health policy and management at Yale University. Tamara was the lead author on a study on admission practices and the cost of care for opioid use disorder at residential addiction treatment programs. And I think it's fair to say uh, that you got the attention of some folks in the industry with your findings. Let's talk about it. First of all, though, Tamara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So this was a, uh, a peer-reviewed study published by the journal Health Affairs. Uh, for those not familiar, we're going to link to it in the show notes for this episode. Uh, first thing I want to ask you, what motivated you to uh, conduct this study and, and look into this? Yeah, so I'm really interested in improving access to evidence-based treatment for opioid use disorder. That's sort of the thread that goes through all my work. Um, and a lot of policymakers are advocating to increase um, the number of beds as a policy solution for opioid use disorder. Um, but we actually don't know that much systematically about the nature of the programs and what they're actually delivering. Um, and so there were some you know, anecdotes in the popular press about um, some concerns and we didn't know if these were kind of one-offs or widespread issues. So um, we employed a secret shopper um, study style study to um, sort of elucidate information about um, these programs um, and get systematic evidence on uh, the treatment costs, admissions practices, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So tell us just a little bit about uh, how you set this up in terms of like this persona that you created for the quote unquote secret shopper, um, who you, which programs you're reaching out to and uh, you know, just h- how you made this work and then what you found. Sure. So um, we developed a script through um, pilot calls from um, programs that weren't in our sample and uh, we developed a, a patient profile, someone who was 27, who didn't have insurance. Uh, we had both male and female callers. Um, they used heroin daily, didn't have any other medical complications. Um, and we um, sort of developed this script through the, the pilot calls, um, asking questions that a prospective patient might wanna know. Um, we got our facilities from um, a national uh, treatment locator, a government, um, a government list of programs uh, where we randomly sampled from there. We also got um, some facilities from Google advertisements that are advertising to um, patients looking for treatment. Um, In terms of what we found, so we found um, several things uh, about admissions, costs, um, recruitment techniques, therapies, accreditation. Um, So I guess um, sort of a brief highlight would be in terms of access uh, to admission that um, for-profits actually did quite well. Um, and they had um, most of the time you could get in within the next day or the same day, whereas nonprofits, it took on average a couple weeks to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, for-profits, however, were more likely to offer um, patients admission without a clinical evaluation uh, by a healthcare professional, um, which was less often done with nonprofits. Um, and the for-profits more likely to screen out more complicated patients. Um, In terms of cost, it was about $600 a day. Um, For-profits were um, twice as expensive as nonprofits. Um, Also, most of the for-profits had upfront payments um, and those were 
about $17,000 on average, about three times as much as um, the nonprofits. Mm. Um, and for-profits were also commonly using recruitment techniques, um, which we could get into if you're um, interested, uh, therapies. Um, few of them, only a third of them were um, offering medication maintenance, which is really the gold standard of um, care in the literature. Um, and a, a similar amount were actually actively dissuading patients from using um, this effective um, uh, approach and accreditation. Um, it didn't seem to actually help. Um, and if anything, the accredited um, places were actually um, sort of using worse practices as we sort of, in terms of the ones that we looked at. Yeah, let's talk about those recruitment techniques that you mentioned. Can you kind of just expound on that a little bit? And were you surprised at all um, by the conversations you had with some of the organizations, uh, you know, representatives when you reached out to them and, and you know, is this, uh, you know, hypothetical patient that was seeking treatment? Yeah, I, I was quite surprised, actually. So we didn't um, actually initially go into this study looking for recruitment um, techniques and marketing sort of practices at all. Actually, we we're looking um, for access to care um, and therapies costs and that sort of thing is what we were interested in. And um, this just became such a prominent part of the phone calls and the pilot phone calls that um, when we were developing a script that we thought it was important to document um, and share. And sort of the categories that they um, fell into were cost or luxury-based reasoning, sort of touting gourmet chefs and, um, and sort of a vacation resort-like experience, um, travel-based inducements like booking or paying for flights um, or uh, to the facilities, um, attempting to extend contact after calls, like asking to talk to your family, um, calling or texting afterward, um, and even pressuring to commit to treatment by insinuating it's a life or death situation and that sort of thing. Um, and we didn't actually specifically elicit any of this. Um, it just sort of was an occurrence and then we had doc documented it when it happened. So you had this persona that you developed. Um, did you have any thoughts about maybe trying to create some different personas to determine if that would produce a different response that you would receive when you contacted treatment providers? Yeah. So we, um, the persona we chose was sort of based on what was intended to be um, that of a typical patient. So we have experts on the team that treat this population and um, uh, sort of developed the profile from their expertise. Um, we, would have liked, I think, to um, do several different profiles and see um, kind of how things differ. Unfortunately, that's just a very resource intensive. Every time you sort of add another profile, then you need to double the sample size and um, just in order to be able to say something meaningful. Um, and so that's just something that wasn't within the scope of this study, but I would love to see that done in the future for sure. Um, is that something that you would look to pursue at a later date? Are, are you thinking about exploring this whole area further or are you moving on to other things? Um, I don't think I personally would um, be doing that. Um, I'm, I'm definitely interested in access to treatment. So um, that's sort of the thread of um, what I'm doing in the past and doing in the future. Um, I don't think I would 
uh, be calling these programs again. Um, I have a paper coming out um, or that I'm submitting soon about telehealth and opioid use disorder. And so mm. I'm just sort of um, looking from different angles about how we can structure policies to incentivize providers to provide um, good treatment, good access to treatment, um, competitive prices and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, you got a little bit of pushback, I would say, um, from NATAP on this that they did a uh, one of the representatives uh, did a lengthy interview uh, with the uh, publication alcoholism and drug abuse weekly uh i'm curious to know if you took a look at any of their comments um i think one of the criticisms um was that uh the the providers that you reached out to might not necessarily be representative of the field at large um, and they had some exceptions to other things as well. I'm just kind of curious, um, if you had any thoughts on that and, um, what other kinds of feedback you've heard, um, from folks within the industry? Um, yeah, so they're actually the only ones within the industry that I've heard. Um, I've heard pushback from, uh, I think in terms of representativeness, um, we don't claim it's representative and we say that in the paper we just tried to replicate what we think the experience of a patient looking for um, treatment online would be like using you know a government list of programs using google advertisements how most people find anything these days is through google i think um and uh we just say exactly what we did in the paper we include the script it was peer-reviewed by experts in the field prior to publication and um and we just thought it was important to um shed light on sort of what's going on in this industry because there's not a lot of um, transparency or sort of knowledge at large of um, uh, what their practices really look like. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's it, it's tough. I mean, one of the big stories that we've covered over the last couple of years uh, is online marketing and how Google and uh, Facebook and I think Bing, that the uh, the Microsoft search engine, have started requiring legit script certification um, before you could start advertising on their platforms. But when you know you're getting into uh, you know these phone call situations, that's uh, that, that's a different jurisdiction. Um, I, I'm curious, just from your perspective, is you know somebody who's on the other end of that phone call, you're calling in, you're seeking treatment, um, you know, hypothetically in this case of the study as a quote unquote secret shopper, uh, you know, from your perspective, what, what can treatment centers uh, be doing uh, to improve that experience for the folks who are reaching out to them? Yeah. Um, so just to your point on the legit scripts, I also thought that was really interesting. Um, and I think both that and that the accreditation um, is happening by private, you know, third party companies, I feel like is um, just sort of emblematic of the sort of public sector negligence and um, sort of coming in and protecting consumers. And it's unfortunate that it's, you know, private third parties that have to kind of step in that have, you know, financial interests as well. So um, that was just a point that I thought was um, interesting since you brought it up. Um, in terms of what they can do uh, to have a better experience. So I think transparency is super important. That's something that, you know, they should have costs and therapies that are offered and, um, you know, as much as they can in terms of quality, that sort of information um, available online. Um, 
they can treat it more similarly to other healthcare treatment. Um, you should eval be evaluated by healthcare professionals prior to admission to ensure, um, sorry, to ensure the level of uh, treatment is appropriate, a good clinical fit for the patient. Um, you know, like you wouldn't go into an emergency department and, you know, not assess for whether treatment is needed and just give them care anyway, you know? Um, and uh, they should also make sure that the people that are answering the phone are um, sort of informed on what evidence-based practices have some guidelines on what they can say so they're not misinforming patients. Okay. And along those lines, based on your experiences, um, if there's an individual who is seeking addiction treatment, what kinds of questions should they be asking when they pick up the phone and, and contact providers? And what kind of responses should raise red flags when, uh, when they ask those questions? Yeah, I mean, I think um, that how much it costs is important. What kind of therapies are being offered? If they're not offering evidence-based therapy, that's problematic. If they're dissuading you from... Um, using evidence-based therapy, saying medication is just trading one addiction for another, that's that's a red flag. That's not something that, you know, you they're providing misinformation and stigma against evidence-based therapy. Um, uh, so I think, um, you know, making sure that uh, you ask about how this is going to be financed, what's going on with um, what's being offered, and um, we actually, we have the script online as well. So feel free to uh, <laughs> use that as a patient as well. Is that the uh, the script that you used for your calls? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's in the online appendix of the paper. Really interesting stuff, Tamara. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been really good. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for us. As a reminder, you can subscribe to the BHE podcast on Apple Podcasts and other uh, podcast listening platforms. You can listen to old episodes of our show on our website, behavioral.net. Our thanks once again to Tamara Beatham for joining us this week. I'm BHE Senior Editor Tom Valentino, and this has been the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. Mm -hmm.